You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Thanks so much, Pastor Nick. All right, in the chat bar, what, what fantasy novelist is this one from? You're a wizard, Harry. All right, let's see who can get that one. All right, um, as uh, Nick said, my name is Russell. I've been on staff uh, since 2013, and um, I'm really excited to be able to share with you all uh, this morning. So let me uh, start this off with a a quick story. Um, On September 2nd, 2020, about two weeks ago, the University of Illinois community received a mass mail. Now, as many of you students know, During this pandemic, it's been pretty normal to get a mass mail from Chancellor Jones. Our campus community, we've been trying to navigate COVID-19 and containing its spread. And as we've endeavored to do that, it's resulted in a lot of communication, right? However, there was something kind of different about this particular mass mail. It had some zest. It, It had some punch, right? It had a level of urgency that you don't normally get from a university administrator. So what was the urgency all about? Chancellor Jones was giving the U of I and its students an ultimatum. Over the next two weeks, we had to start taking the U of I's COVID-19 policy seriously or campus was going to get shut down. Chancellor Jones laid all the cards on the table. Our university, we they implemented this really rigorous testing system. It it was so good and effective, it was beginning to get national attention. It it was on NPR. And you could have counted me amongst the true believers, right? I said to multiple people, if any university can beat COVID, it's the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. ILL, right? ILL! Give me some I and I's in the chat. Um, Chat's over there. Like many of us, uh, there was one thing I didn't take into account. Parties, right? Okay, here for parties. You guys like to party? Don't party. All right, college students, they like to party. Actually, let me amend that. They love to party. It sort of becomes synonymous with college, right? You take gen eds, you live in a dorm, and you attend parties. Social gatherings are in many ways the core curriculum for the entire Big Ten system. Not going to a party for some is like skipping intro to world religions. It's just not right. You just don't do it. So people partied. One Saturday afternoon uh, after classes had resumed, I was driving to Farron's in Champaign, shout out to Farron's, to pick up some food. And uh, me and my friend, we made the mistake of going down to green and first, we hit traffic and as we drove past the new cams, you would not have known that there was a global pandemic occurring. There were jorts, there were NBA jerseys, and there were very few masks. They were conspicuously absent. Crowds of people mingled on porches and patios all along First Street. Now, on the surface, these parties, they can seem like normal fraternizing amongst youths, right? But in the midst of COVID-19, these parties, they were undermining a lot of the hard work 
that many people at the U of I were putting into making this campus viable. We wanted this place to, to successfully exist and, and fill the purpose of a university. And that's why these tests and the Safe for Illinois app was implemented. Unfortunately though, to quote Chancellor Jones, the irresponsible actions of a small number of students have created the very real possibility of ending an in-person semester for all of us. The U of I was given two weeks to get its act together. And in a few days, we're going to see how receptive our community was to the chancellor's exhortation. Now, I don't know about you, but it can be easy to sit back and judge the people going to these parties. But I think if we peel back a few layers, peel back a few kegs, and examine what is motivating people as they attend these social gatherings, I think we, we find something universally human. There is a need in all of us for congregating a need for human contact, for togetherness, for fellowship, especially during COVID-19. Social distancing has been making a lot of us feel a little crazy, isolated, like, like we just need to, to get out of our walls. And I think that need to be around other people was a risk that many were willing to take, even if it meant they got sick. If I get the virus, I get the virus, was the, uh, the mantra of a lot of people. Parties are powerful. They're meaningful. They, they transcend the human experience. And while parties are not advisable during a global pandemic, especially one that's passed through the respiratory system, they're an important part of human society. And get this, right? Parties aren't just an integral part of human Humanity, they're an important part of God's story. Parties are a key metaphor in Christianity. And even though many of us Christians get a bad rap that we don't like to party, I would say that the story of Christianity is about God preparing one of the most epic, beautiful, and joyous parties ever seen by mankind. And with today's sermon, we're going to see Jesus share a parable about a party. And get this, he's going to share this parable while at a party. It's going to be pretty off the chain. So would you guys pray with me and we'll dive in. Father God, thank you so much for your scriptures. Thank you for um, recording these parables through text so that we can have them all these thousands of years later. We acknowledge, God, that even though these stories are ancient, they are super relevant to our lives. Please help us as we examine these passages to understand them and to apply them faithfully to 2020. We love you, God, and we're so grateful to be able to, to study your word together as a church family. All right, throw an amen in the chat bar if you want. Now, if you're just joining us for the first time, we are in the midst of a seven-week sermon series that we entitled, Then He Said, The Parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Each week, we're examining a parable that Jesus taught. We're going to seek to understand its, its context in first, the first century, and then we're going to find ways to apply these parables to our lives in 2020. We're convinced that these ancient texts are still relevant to modern lives. And as I've studied this parable, I was struck by how timely it felt to me, how relevant this story was to my own life. 
As I'm preaching today, if you haven't caught this, we want to encourage you to interact in the chat bar on YouTube. It's been challenging that we don't get to be together in person. I miss the armor. I miss seeing you all in the lobby. And the chat bar is one of the, the most helpful tools we have to remind ourselves that we're not doing this alone. We're watching this together in community. So as you're listening, um, here's kind of how I'm picturing it. If you've ever sat in the back of church, you'll see people like Maddie or myself whispering to whoever they're sitting next to, right? And usually they're whispering like a brilliant comment or insight. So instead of whispering to your dog, uh, type that into the chat bar. We'd love to see everyone interacting on there. All right, so let's dive into the parable, okay? My plan for the rest of our time is fairly simple. Uh, we'll read the parable. I'll try to break it down in the first century context, and then we'll apply it to our lives in 2020. Pretty simple. Now, before we read the parable, I want to kind of paint a picture for the setting and, and help you understand where Jesus is telling this story because it's important. Our parable is found in the 14th chapter of Luke, and at the beginning of that chapter, we're told that Jesus is at a dinner party, a Sabbath meal, being hosted by a religious leader called a Pharisee. The easiest way to understand a Pharisee is to think of them as kind of the pastors of the Jewish people in first century Judaism. We're never told of the Pharisee's intent in hosting this party, so we really shouldn't assume if he had good or bad intentions. We, we just don't know. To kind of bring the, the picture of this meal to, to a more modern day, think of it as a Sunday evening dinner being hosted by a local pastor and Jesus is David Blaine, right? You ever watch the David Blaine specials where everyone's hanging out in the kitchen and he pulls like a frog out of his mouth and then stabs himself with an ice pick? That's kind of what I'm imagining, right? Jesus was a fascinating and somewhat mystical figure in the community, mainly because he was performing miracles. But like David Blaine, people were suspicious that Jesus was just a magician or worse, uh, an agent of the devil. Now, unlike David Blaine, Jesus was actually God incarnate, sovereign over nature itself, which is why he could perform miracles. And at this very dinner party, before our story starts, he actually healed somebody who had a condition called dropsy, which was the, the swelling of, of the body. Jesus uses that healing as an illustration to teach the teachers. Now, during this dinner party, Jesus will tell two parables about two types of parties. And I want to encourage you all, after we're done, go ahead and read the first half of Luke chapter 14 and see how the parables kind of flow into one another. The parable we're focusing on today, though, is the second parable that Jesus shares at this party. And it's about a certain man who was hoping to throw a party himself and the various ways that people responded to him and his invitation. So let's open up our Bibles to Luke 14, verse 15 through 24. And I'll, I'll give you guys a few seconds. If you want to grab a physical Bible, I would strongly encourage that. Um, and we'll read along together. So you guys ready to go? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's read Luke 14, 15 through 24. When one of those at the table heard him 
Ah, sorry. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, like I mentioned, our, our section of study begins in the middle of the dinner party. Jesus had just finished telling a parable about honor and humility and pride. And his exhortation to the crowd was to humble themselves so that God could exalt them. He follows that exhortation up with another exhortation to be selfless and generous when throwing parties themselves. All right, so I don't know how many of you like to read the room, but it's hard to know the vibe of this room, right? At this point, but verse 15, it, it kind of gives us a clue. And there's kind of a funny moment here that happens. So uh, I like to put myself in the position of, of the 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 person I'm going to kind of throw under the bus. So here, here's how I'm imagining it. Uh, Jesus finishes this first parable and the exhortation, and many in the room probably felt very uncomfortable, and there was probably an awkward silence, like when you crack a joke in this online setting and no one laughs. Um, thanks. <laughs> now, if you've ever been on a Zoom meeting, right, you're probably very familiar with uncomfortable silences. What is the best way to end an uncomfortable silence? Leave. Leave. Yeah, leave the Zoom. No. Change the subject with a great platitude. I want all of you to try this this week on your Zoom meetings. If there's an uncomfortable silence, declare a great platitude. This is exactly what the, the unnamed guest does. They, explain, they exclaim this. Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And I'm, I'm just imagining them like kind of patting themselves on the back, being like, Jesus is going to be impressed. Now, to be fair, we're not made fully aware of that person's intentions when they made that proclamation, right? It, it could have been them trying to break the silence. It could have been them trying to change the subject. We're not sure, right? But my feeling, if this person was me, I think they were probably just trying to impress people at the party. And maybe curry a little favor with Jesus and the Pharisee at the same time, like just wanting to kind of people please the crowd. To put it another way, I think the guy was kind of looking for a high five from Jesus, like, hit me up, Jesus. And classic Jesus, he gives him a fist bump instead, right? Straight to the heart, metaphorically. He didn't punch him, I don't think. All right, so 
in the chat bar, let's hear from you, okay? Why do you think this proclamation led to Jesus sharing this parable? Do you think the person was being pious or were they being genuine? Why do you think Jesus decided to respond with the parable? Regardless of this person's intent, it triggers a story from Jesus about a certain man. And this certain man wants to throw a party. Now back in those days, it's hard to believe there was no Facebook, right? There was no Evites. Heck, there were no cell phones. Time was also much more elastic. They, they lived on agrarian time, not, not the industrial time that, that we lived on. So if you were throwing a party in those days, you would send along uh, a save the date of sorts. You'd be like, hey, I'm going to be throwing this party. Give it two or three weeks, but just kind of stay ready. It'll happen once I'm ready. And then once the party and everything was set up and ready to go, you would send out an event reminder via, not Siri, but via your servant. It's kind of privileged thing to be able to do. So this is called a double invitation. And this is an important part because as we heard those three excuses for not attending the banquet, we have to remember all three of these people knew about this party well in advance. They weren't caught off guard. They had known about it. They had time to prepare. They had time to, to put it in their calendar and to schedule. They all had plenty of lead time. They, they could have attended the party. But that isn't what happened, right? Instead, these three people, they give three excuses. So let's quickly review what the three excuses were. The first person says they can't come to the party because they have a field and they need to look at it. The second person says they can't come because they're trying out some of their newly acquired oxen. I've used that for parties. It's a great excuse. See, and I'm having an uncomfortable silence right now. Um, and a third person says they can't come because they just got married and leaves it at that like, you get it, man. You, you've probably been married. You get what being a newlywed is like. Now, what do all three of these excuses have in common? They are super lame. I know we have all probably been invited to parties that we don't want to attend, right? They're usually for three-year-olds, and there's usually a bouncy house that's just taunting you because you can't go in the bouncy house because you're too big and you might hurt a three-year-old. <laughs> but... I think when we're trying to get out of a party, we all feel a sense of obligation to make our excuses interesting and compelling, right? And to make matters worse, none of these excuses were like time sensitive. The field wasn't going anywhere. They had already bought the oxen so they could test them at any time. And the married person was going to be married tomorrow. So they could argue about how to fold socks on Monday instead of Sunday. The excuses, rightfully so, make this certain man angry. And he comes up with a new party plan. He gets the party planning committee together and they decide, hey, let's open up this invitation. Let's have the servant go out and make a bunch of same day invites. And let's invite people that are best understood as social outcasts, people who are severely disadvantaged. In the ESV, the certain man instructs his servant to go to the highways and the hedges 
And this imagery made me think of highway overpasses, where in, in many cities it's now common to see kind of tent cities develop of people that are homeless and hurting and struggling. People that have been outcast from society that, that can't catch a break, that need help. This man decides to invite these people, and how do they respond? They attend. They don't make lame excuses. Even though they were invited the same day, they drop anything and everything they may have been doing to be in the presence of this certain man and to attend this party. Now this story is pretty straightforward, and, and because of that, it can be easy to over-allegorize it. And it can be even easier to miss the point. Now, in my estimation, I don't think the key to this parable is precisely assigning a symbolic role to every person. Rather, the, the key to this parable is to keep it simple and to look at how the different people responded. So let's try to understand it, and I, I am going to assign a few roles. I do believe it's, it's fairly clear that the first person that we hear about, this certain man, is a stand-in for Jesus. At the end of the parable, you see their voices merging as he proclaims, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. As I mentioned earlier, all of, all of salvation's story is, is pushing forward to this wedding feast between Christ and his church. So then, I, I think the best way to understand then the servant is, is really anyone who's making that, that gospel invitation. Anyone who acts as a diplomatic representative, an, an emissary. The disciples, right? The, the 12 that follow Jesus. Those could be a good example of being one of Jesus' servants. Now, when we start thinking about the invited guests, this is where we can begin to over-allegorize, right? What does each little thing represent? Who, who is the placeholder for the Jews? Who are the Gentiles? What do the oxen represent? Are the lame and crippled a metaphor for um, different phases in Jesus' ministry? I, I, I think, though, if we get lost in all that symbolism, we can lose the ultimate point. The ultimate point is this. Two very different groups of people are invited to a party. And both groups have very different responses to the invitation. One group, what do they do? They, they respond with complacency and indifference. They have more important things to worry about than celebrating with that certain man. And beyond that, they'll probably get invited again. The social outcasts, however, the people on the margins, they drop everything because they know this opportunity is so precious. It may never happen again. And, and I believe the two responses are directly tied to the status of these people. One thing our Western minds might not grasp is that the first three people that were invited were most likely wealthy. It would take resources to own a field. It would take resources to own oxen, and, and even being married was a, a sign of, of having a good family. With all that came social status. They were privileged enough to be invited in the first place. They gave an RSVP, but they had a sense of entitlement to the invitation. 
The sense of entitlement was so deep, they felt justified in offering those excuses, which I would say were very hurtful. Their wealth and their status led them to take for granted the hosts of the party, and they did him a great dishonor by blowing him off, especially in light of the fact that he wanted to throw a party. Parties are fun, right? They're, they're celebratory. They're a good time. He wasn't inviting them to, to dig holes. He was inviting them to eat and drink and be merry in his presence. Friends, Jesus is inviting you to a party. How will you respond to the invitation? Will you be like the first three and make lame excuses? Or will you learn from, from those that we reject in society and do whatever it takes to attend that banquet? Now, as I was studying the parable, I was struck by how even 2,000 years ago, the prior, not yet, not yet. Um, 2,000 years ago, the priorities of a first century Middle Eastern Jew, they were super similar to the priorities of your average college degree earning American. So what do I mean by that, okay? Let, let's look at the three excuses that they give, an oxen, a field, and marriage, and kind of see how those fit in 2020. Now, I think the, the best way to understand an ox in 2020 is to think of it as your livelihood. It's your way of making an income. Those oxen would be used to till a field, potentially to grow crops, and those crops you could eat, you could feed your family, or you could sell them and, and make some money. Those oxen would be how you put food on the table. And I think it's a pretty good analogy for a job. What is the field then? I'm understanding the field as real estate, property, land. In 30 AD and in 2020 AD, people want to own property. The American dream of a nice house on a lot of land with a white picket fence isn't a new idea. The houses look different and, and the plots of land are different, but the desire to have a home and a piece of land, that transcends time, that transcends culture. People want that. And what does marriage represent in 2020? Well, you wouldn't believe it, it represents marriage still. People, they still want to fall in love, they still want to find that special someone, and people still want to make those lifelong commitments to each other. So you have a job, a house, and a spouse. That list is why a majority of you are in college. You've been told your whole life you need to get a job so you can buy a house, so you can have a spouse, and have some cute grandkids, so then they can go to college, so they can get a job, so they can buy a house and have cute grandkids for you. That's kind of what this whole deal is about, right? And, and let me be clear, right? There's nothing objectively evil or wrong about any of those things. I, I partake in all three. And I would say God is a, a big proponent of work. He's a, he, he gave us this beautiful planet to live on and to steward and to have homes in. And he loves marriage, right? He invented it. And he hates divorce. 
If these things are good, though, why does Jesus point them out in his parable as impediments to him? Well, from my experience watching students graduate from U of I and transition into adulthood after college, I think the reason Jesus calls these out is because these are the three things that have the greatest capacity to kill your relationship with that certain man. How many times have we found ourselves using work as an excuse to avoid God, to avoid engaging with the Bible, to avoid Christian community, to, to skip out on small group? I just have too much work. I, I, I can't. I just can't. Now, many of you don't own homes yet, but you will one day, and a lot of you are working towards that goal. And many of us homeowners, we can testify to just how consuming it can be. Projects, renovations, keeping up with the Joneses, all of this stuff can consume your time, consume your money. This happened to me this summer. Megan and I had a project every month, May, June, July, August, because we're preparing for this baby to come. And in a lot of ways, those projects kind of overtook me and consumed me. And, and there were times when I would try to schedule listening to a podcast sermon or, or, or getting involved with the word. And I would just be like, no, I literally need to go to my field and pull uh, peach pits from the ground. Yeah, pathetic. Now, we don't hear this a ton at a college church, right? But once you move on to community church, well, no, this, this does happen. It happens everywhere, actually. You'll see people disappear for weeks, right? Sometimes months. And when they come back, what's the excuse usually? Dude, work. It's been killing me. Taking up all my time. Dude, my field. I have to mow it. I just don't have any time. I don't have time for church right now. So, so what's the point there, right? When it, I don't think I made this sentence up, so I'm sorry if I'm plagiarizing this, but when a good thing becomes a God thing, it always ends up a bad thing. Have you guys heard that before? When a good thing becomes a God thing, it always ends up a bad thing. Now lastly, let's look at the excuse of marriage. This is a really hard one for me because it, it, it kind of hits at my heart. Even at the age of 33, I, I haven't lived that much life, but I've already seen the carnage and the pain that a marriage can inflict on someone's relationship with God. Unfortunately for many believers, they stop following Jesus after college because they, they end up in a relationship with someone who isn't following Jesus. They'll get married to someone that doesn't share their beliefs, doesn't share that same faith, and they say things to me like, don't worry, Russ. They're interested in God, and they're really curious about spirituality. But unfortunately, once the marriage has happened, we don't usually see conversions. Rather, we see the seed of faith that was blossoming in college get choked out by the cares of the world. Many Christians marry non-believers. And these, these well-intentioned people, they make an empty promise of being open to the religion. But nine times out of ten, what happens is the Christian faith gets choked out. Or worse, the marriage just breaks apart because the, the uneven yoking of, of beliefs 
And the one spouse feels forced to choose Jesus over the other. My heart for all of you that that aren't married yet is that you will prioritize finding a spouse that will encourage you to attend the party that Jesus is throwing. Do not settle. Wait. Wait until you find that person. Find a spouse that loves Jesus so much that when you come home and tell them you're skipping the party to hang out with them, you're turning them a, a good thing into a God thing, that they will say, forget you, man. I'm going to the party. You can come with me or you can stay at home by yourself. Marriage is a beautiful gift from God. And we have to steward it. We have to use it in the way that he intended. Love and respect. Honor and selflessness. Mutuality. It, it, it's ultimately a covenant between two people and God. And it's impossible for someone to enter into that covenant with God if they do not believe in him. Now, it's important to say this. I don't want Christian couples to be fooled into thinking that if you marry a fellow believer, everything will be fine. That's not the case. And in the trap of turning a spouse into an idol, Christians do that all the time. Again, we we turn a good thing into a God thing. And we, we make our spouse the ultimate. And we make everything about them. When really, the best way to love and to serve your spouse is to make God your first priority. In a marriage, you mutually take responsibility for pushing each other, dragging each other to Jesus' party so that neither one of you are left out. Now, as I've reflected on this story, I've been struck by something. Christianity gets this bad rap of being very dour and stuffy, right? That it's this religion about oppression and control. When in actuality, the the story of Christianity, it, it culminates in a party. It culminates in a wedding banquet. Jesus gets to marry his bride, the church, and all of humanity has been invited. Being a Christian is a celebration. It's an act of joy. It's supposed to be fun. It's a party worth attending. Through this parable, Jesus is reminding all of us that we have been invited to the party, but we cannot take our invitation for granted. We can't be complacent, and we can't make lame excuses for rejecting him. Jesus Christ, he sent his invitation from the cross, and it's faith in that death and his resurrection that is your RSVP to the party. I pray, Alina Life, that if you have not accepted him in your heart, that if you have not sent in that RSVP, that you would make that decision today. Choose to attend the party that Jesus wants to throw for us. And if you have sent in your RSVP, I, I plead with you, don't let anything get in the way from being in attendance. Not your spouse, not your house, and especially not your oxen. All right, let's pray.